Hi there, I'm Amanda Stevens, and welcome to the Epic Podcast, where I explore the minds of some of the planet's most epic entrepreneurs, business leaders, and visionaries to unearth their incredible stories, their journey to success, how they do what they do, and most importantly, why. My hope is that you'll find some inspiration in each episode, some new ideas, or perhaps just a little motivation to build an epic business and life. Hey gang, welcome to episode three and thank you for tuning in. I feel like we're on a bit of a roll now uh, and I'm pretty amped for today's episode, I have to tell you. Uh, Luke Mangan is one of the world's most celebrated chefs and he's built an epic business off the back of a single restaurant. This is a very cool chat. There's lots to it and you're absolutely going to love it. And we also have the beautiful Amelia Phillips here to share another epic health hack. This is episode three of the epic podcast, Please play that epic funky music. Well, my guest today is arguably Australia's most successful restaurateur. With 20 restaurants spanning four continents, five cruise ships and an airline, a portfolio of product partnerships and five books to his name, Luke Mangan has built a household brand through a commitment to excellence and a career spanning more than three decades. He was recently awarded the Order of Australia Medal and in this episode, Luke dishes up some lessons on his recipe for success. See what I did there? Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, you were actually kicked out of school, which you've since said was one of the best things that happened to you. When did you know that school wasn't for you? And more importantly, when did you discover your passion for cooking? Well, I, I think, um, you know, school, I, I think when I was spending more time outside the classroom than inside the classroom, uh, I realized school wasn't for me and I couldn't really sit still and, you know, didn't enjoy uh, listening and, and things like that. So, I think it was it was very apparent that it wasn't for me. So and, and then, you know, I fell into cooking in a way of um, doing work experience and things like that. But I wouldn't say I started to enjoy cooking until I was sort of finishing my four year apprenticeship. I would think. Mm. And of course, you did your apprenticeship with the famous Herman Schneider of yeah. Two Faces. And yeah. in your biography, you talk a lot about the reality of working conditions for young apprentice chefs, long hours, um, complete pressure cooker environment, pun intended. Um, and you talk about wanting to quit on multiple occasions. Why didn't you? Well, I think there was probably nothing really else for me to go and do. Um, so I guess, you know, there was also a commitment to my parents at the time that, that that I had to finish the apprenticeship and things like that. So that was always in the back of my mind. And um, I think not knowing what else I could do was a big driving force behind that. So do you remember Do you remember the time or what changed for you going from an apprenticeship that you weren't really enjoying um, to, to falling in love with cooking? Yeah, I, I think um, it was one, there was one particular night that I was put on the, the, the meat station and where you cook all the main courses, and, and I hadn't really done it before, and it was a really busy night. And 
I actually, you know, it, it went well and I enjoyed it. And even the boss came over and, and congratulated me. Um, I think I surprised him as well. But um, it, it was just then that I sort of realized, I think I was about 18 or 19. And then finishing my apprenticeship, knowing that I had the world at my feet, you can travel the world, you can meet different chefs and go to different countries, see different cultures, try different food uh, and markets and things like that. And that's where I sort of realized that it just wasn't all about kitchen. It was all about everything else that this um, industry can deliver. Mm. And you did travel. You went off to London to work just shy of your 21st birthday. Yeah. Did you have any idea at the time just how incredible that learning ground was? Uh, No, I don't think you ever do. But, you know, looking back on it now, it really is or was the best thing I did. Um, You know, to go work in a three-star Michelin restaurant, um, one of the best in the world at the time, and and to spend that opportunity to learn there was, was, was you know, it's a money can't buy experience. In fact, they didn't pay me for a month, but, you know, that's the way it was. That's what we agreed on. Can't, I can't imagine a Gen Y today ever agreeing to that. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so either. But um, that was, you know, it was. I think it was something I wanted to do. And, and I, I think well, I wrote a letter to, because we wrote letters back then, um, to Michelle, Michelle Rue of the Waterside Inn asking if there was a position and, I got a letter back some time ago and, and he said it was a two-year wait list and I was a bit pissed off by that. Hopefully I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, and then I ended up getting through to him on the phone um, in London and rang him and said it was me and he said, no, sorry, it's a two-year wait list. And, and then uh, I, for some unknown reason, I quickly thought and said, what if I come and work a month without pay and if I'm any good, you give me a job? And he said, come over straight away. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much how that worked. Amazing. Yeah. So thinking- and, and, and I ended up staying, you know, two, two or three years. Incredible. So thinking about that time, which was obviously pivotal in your career, what do you think was the greatest lesson or experience that you had in London? Um, well, I, I think, you know, offering that, working a month without pay, um, getting the opportunity to work in that kitchen uh, with all those chefs in a three-star kitchen, which was long hours and, and, and long weeks and lousy pay and things like that. But it, it gave me a foundation for the rest of my career in cooking and how to cook and make things and do things properly. And, and it was a, a base that I could improve on. Um, and you know, you can never stop learning, and to this day, I, I ne- never stop learning. So I think um, it was it was just a good a good kickstart for me in the industry. When you came back to Australia, um, you talk about spending the first few weeks and months questioning whether moving back here was the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and what changed? Um, well, look, it, you know, I was running. I came back, and I was young, and. Australia is very different from from London and its food scene and in that time and and I think I opened about three restaurants that all went broke within within about six to twelve months and I was starting the question was it my ability to cook and we couldn't deliver the product and things like that and then you know it it, it was you know restaurants and we all know today restaurants are a tough business um, and 25 years ago or whatever, it was also a tough business. So 
nothing's really changed there, but it's just about um, being persistent and, and um, you know, keep, keep tracking on, I guess, and ha- having a go and just making sure things can work out. And, and thankfully, I got through that lull and um, things progressed from there. And the turning point was really your restaurant, Salt. Um, you had an incredible first year. You were named Best New Restaurant in the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide. Tell us about that time and, and what happened next. Oh, yeah, I mean, I was um, 29 and um, that's when I first... My goal was always to open a restaurant before 30, so I was 29 and opened Salt. Um, and that that was pretty risky business and... Uh, it, it was good, you know, it was uh, exciting. It was, uh, we had so much, it was just before the Olympics, so we had all this media attention and, um, yeah, it, it was it was fun. And it was about, I think a restaurant is about an expression of yourself and what I wanted salt to be. And the reason I called it salt was because salt was, back in the ancient Greek days, they used to give salt as a gift, to be, to be honest, and it was a sign of hospitality and friendship. And I wanted Salt to be a really hospitable, friendly restaurant, not up itself. Um, and, and thankfully, we achieved that. It, w- it was great. We had all this buzz and fun. And, you know, uh, in the first three years, we did really well. And I started to open other restaurants in that time. And, um, you know, after five or so years, it probably took my eye off the ball at Salt. And, and things, business started to suffer as well. And also, was it, you know, I, I, I still believe to this day restaurants have a lifespan of between three and five years, and uh, Salt's lifespan was five years in Sydney, and and um, close to uh, the end of Salt, where I was nearly broke, I'd, I'd um, uh, had these other restaurants, but I'd also had the opportunity to, where we had a, a Japanese um, investor want to open an Australian restaurant in Tokyo, and this was in about 2005, and this person had um, been out to all the top restaurants in Sydney from Tetsuya's and Rockpool and all that and, and Salt was apparently his favourite and um, he we had a meeting and, and you know uh, to cut a long story short we ended up partnering and opening Salt in Tokyo uh, in 2006 but at the same time I was closing Salt Sydney down but also opening Glass in the Hilton Up, um, which is now 15 years old today. So, um, it's, you know, a lot of doors close, but a lot of doors open as well. Mm. So why do you think Glass has had the lifespan that it has? It's kind of defied, defied the three to five year rule. Yeah, well, um, you know, we're still very consistent in business with the figures we're doing now that we were doing 15 years ago. The, the advantage we have is 600 hotel rooms above us, which not many freestanding restaurants have, obviously. Um, so I think that has been a critical um, connection to, to, to why we're 15 years old today and it's still going well. But also it's a partnership with Hilton, who we, when we first started 15 years ago, that we shared a, a philosophy that we didn't want it to be known as a hotel restaurant. We wanted it to be a restaurant that actually was in a hotel. And I think Hilton admitted back then that they weren't experts in restaurants. They're experts in hotels. And they wanted someone to run the restaurant like a, a, a freestanding restaurant. Um, and we did and we still do. And, and having those 600 rooms above really helps. So you're obviously, you know, key to your success has been the strength of your partnerships 
yeah. for, for example, Hilton. Um, one of your other incredible partnerships is with Virgin, um, and that yeah. that came about from meeting Sir Richard Branson. Yeah, he came into Salt for a meal. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of funny how um, some restaurants or some parts of your business create other opportunities. And this was one night at Salt. We had uh, four guests. It was a very busy night, and um, uh, four guests asked to see me. And um, I went out and had a chat, and they loved the complimenting the food and the whole experience. And I thought it was great. And they were English and they said, you know, their boss is coming out in about a month's time. They'd love to send him here, etc. And I said, great, you know, and they hand me their card and they worked for Virgin. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, so who's your boss? And what a stupid question. So their boss was Richard, Richard Branson. And then um, I thought, yeah, okay, I'll probably never hear from him. Um, all was good. And then about, uh, we exchanged my number and, to these guys and I said, look, have him call me if he ever needs a table and whatever. And and about four or six weeks later, um, I got a call on my mobile and, and um, it was someone saying, uh, you know, it's it's Richard Branson and he was hoping to come in for lunch to Salt and things like that. And uh, did, I really did thought you it was believe, Did you believe that no, it was I, Richard I, Branson? I, yeah, I thought it was the staff taking the piss because um, <laughs> they all knew the story and, and thankfully it wasn't him taking the piss but we didn't have a table for him that that Friday lunch he wanted to come in we had another restaurant in Bondi and um, I diverted him to the Bondi restaurant for lunch and because he had a table of eight because we were full at salt and we, we just didn't have the space and then um, he asked if I would be there and I wasn't going to be there because I was cooking at salt but I said yes I'll meet you there and went down and met him and met his wife Joan and his daughter Holly and um, he had some other people with him and um, we had a great chat and I sent some champagne out and they had that and off I went back to Salt and cooked and that night at about, I don't know, 8 o'clock I got another call on my mobile and um, he said, you know, Luke, it's Richard and I thought, oh my God, shit, he's got food poisoning or something's gone wrong or whatever <laughs> um, and, and thankfully that wasn't the case. He said, look, I just want a quiet dinner with Joan, my wife tonight, can we come to Salt? And this is 8, 8 p.m. on a Friday night and we're chock-a-block. And, I, and I, I didn't really want to say no again. So I said, yeah, yeah, just come. come. How long have you been? He goes, oh, we're only around the corner because I used to stay at the Holiday Inn, which was in the Virgin Hotel for crew. And it was that's 10 minutes around the corner from Salt. So off he came and, you know, the, the whole restaurant stopped. We didn't have a table, but we ended up finding one and made one available. And I sat down, had a drink with him, and he just said, look, I want you to cook for us. And um, that I did. He asked me out after the meal, we had another drink, and he said, look, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain and I'd love you to come to Necker Island. Uh, that's where they lived, in his island in, in the Caribbean. And, um, you know, about six weeks later, I found myself being flown first class with, with a couple of chefs to, to his island where we stayed two weeks. And the, the deal was that I was to cook for, um, you know, some VIPs and guests and things like that. And... I, I got there about midnight one night and uh, there was a note on my pillow saying, you know, because um, there was rooms, it was like a hotel on the island now, but you know, he said, Luke, why don't we meet for breakfast uh, 8.30 in the morning? So great, we, we met, we had breakfast, good old chat. Quite surreal, meeting Richard and on the island and, and having breakfast. And then uh, he said, look, um, I don't really want you to cook for anyone. Just enjoy the island and have fun. And I'm here in and out and the family's here. And so we had, we really probably cooked about once or twice, but I learned how to play tennis and jet ski and all these things. So it was quite a good experience. But at, at the end of the whole thing, 
he asked me if I'd consider cooking on his leg of, he was launching um, Virgin Atlantic, Sydney to London and London to Sydney route, and he asked if I would be interested in cooking uh, the food in business class. So we, we did that, and, and that was his way of sort of, I guess, wooing me, but afterwards I told him he didn't really need to fly me to NECA to do that because I would have done it anyway. Um, <laughs> so it, it was it was quite all, all good fun, but that's the way he works, and, and we did it, and that really led from Virgin Atlantic, then we started Virgin America for him, uh, business class, and then uh, that led to when John Borghetti came into Virgin Australia that uh, uh, we, we started on the food with Virgin Australia. So it's been quite an incredible journey after just one dinner in one restaurant back in 2003 or four, whenever it was. So how much do you put that down to luck versus you creating that, that kind of opportunity? Well, comes down to right place, right time, doing the right thing, I guess. And and sometimes you don't know what you're doing at the time. Um, so a lot of it's luck. A lot of it was uh, having the restaurant and doing a lot of things right, I guess, as well. And not giving Sir Richard food poisoning. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. This episode of the Epic Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Storage King. When you're building an epic business and life, sometimes you have to store some excess stuff. It could be furniture, retail stock, or even somewhere to house the epic ideas that you're going to have after listening to this show. If that's you, speak to the awesome kings and queens at Storage King. In fact, they have a special introductory offer for epic podcast listeners to get you started. Simply head over to storageking.com.au slash epic to learn all about it. So Luke, at what point did you realise that your business had gone from multiple restaurants to a serious empire? Well, I think when we, you know, I think um, when we started, you know, Tokyo was going really well. Um, We opened, I think, Singapore, Jakarta, Bali. We were doing consulting gigs for Hilton on other things. Um, we opened a resort in the Maldives. Um, you know, the, the the career was going pretty well. There was, t- you know, I was doing TV and blah blah, and everything was going well. Um, and it just kept growing, I guess. And then, um, yeah, just just sort of you sit back and look and think, did we do all that? <laughs> it is incredible, and and so much of you is tied up in this brand from licensing deals, your joint ventures. In building a brand that's so tied to your name, does that ever worry you? Like, what have been the negatives and and positives of that strategy? I, there was no, never a strategy. I never thought about it, to be honest. <laughs> it was just one of those things that that kept spiraling, and I didn't really look back or sit, sit down and think about it. Um, it just it just happened, and uh, the goal was never to have. You know, I think we had twenty two restaurants at one stage, and um, yeah, I mean, look, Salt was always going to be the brand. Um, you know, we had the license deal with, with P&O where we have five Salt grills on those ships. But Salt, you know, it, 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 it's it's now just what it is, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. There was the, one, one thing we never did, and, and I think that's probably a, some, you know, you tell people this story now and they go, what, you didn't have a marketing team or branding people tell you how to do it and what to do it? And to be honest, no, we didn't. We just did it. Just too too busy the doing. 
so how do you, when people say to you, how do you keep up with this portfolio of businesses that you run now? You've got over a thousand staff, you've got restaurants in five countries, airlines, cruise ships. How do you keep across it all? Well, I mean, you know, we've got a good team of people under me who've worked a, a long, long time and, and um, have come up through the ranks, which is really good. Um, in June last year, June um, 18, I actually sold the 50% of my share of my businesses to my partner, my Japanese partner. So that was Singapore, Tokyo, Jakarta. Um, so that I offloaded Asia um, and then really focus on our new Luke's Kitchen brand, which we're trying to expand through back through Asia and, and perhaps other places as well. Um, and then concentrate on the cruise ships and, and Hilton and Virgin. And, and, you know, we've got a head office in Dank Street, Waterloo, where everyone works from and, and a great team that get what we're trying to do and, and keep going, I guess. That's all we can do. And what would you say is your secret to building a great culture? Well, I think, you know, when, when you're 30 and standing in a kitchen and you've got all those pressures in the kitchen, you're yelling and screaming and demanding things and like that and you've got, you're a young, hot-head chef with an ego... And then you grow up and mature and, and, and you know, work with great fun people and, and, and the work-life balancing has really changed from 20 years ago. And, and you know, I think um, empowering people in doing what they're good at and, and um, yeah, just letting them go, up, go along and doing what they do well. I mean, so many of them do so many things better than I do, so why try and beat them? Let them enjoy it and let them do it. Because the pressure is intense. We've seen so many tragic suicides of chefs recently. Of course, the most shocking being that of your friend, Anthony Bourdain. What, yeah. what are your thoughts on why chefs are one of the most likely of any profession to take their own lives and often at the height of, of success? Uh, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not specialised in that field, so I'm, I probably wouldn't comment on that. But, but I think, you know, yes, it is a high-intensity um, working environment, um, lots of stress, lots of pressure. And, and I think we all know it, it's a hard business to make money in. And I think where I got successful was I didn't have all my eggs in one basket and uh, started to do the, the cookbooks, the TV, um, the, the products, um, airlines, trains and, and boats. And, and my, my goal was from 2005 when I nearly went broke at Salt was to make sure I had many streams of income. So for me, it was all about making sure I had streams of income. If one failed, I still had income coming in. So that's that's how it worked for me. Um, but yeah, others I, I, I can't comment. Mm. What I find fascinating is that in 2005, as you say, when you were nearly going broke, that was the year you actually founded the Appetite for Excellence Awards. Yeah, when you exactly right, when you yeah. when you clearly had enough on your plate, yeah. uh, why why did you start this and why then? Um, well, it was you know I, I was transferring into Hilton and doing other things I guess so yes financially it wasn't in a good thing a good spot but uh, I'm always someone who looks on the positive side so the the glass is always half full with me so um, the. the Going through what I went through, and also I had mates in the business who were really struggling as well in, in, in restaurants. And so to start Appetite for Excellence was all about getting 
young people in the industry recognizing their talent and um, you know building a program which now is also in its fifteenth year that is is giving back to the industry and and um, supporting young people in the industry from uh, educating them motivating them and and things like that and and having a great core foundation of of chefs and judges in our competition uh you know like we've got peter gilmore and guy grossi and 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 martin ben and and dan hunter and all these top chefs and restaurateurs supporting the program who are all supporting the future of the industry and and back then i just saw that there was there's a huge dropout rate and there still is a huge dropout rate sadly of, of young chefs uh and and wait people in our industry so it was the program is designed to motivate them and show them that it's not just about picking a telephone up on in ordering some fish and meat it's we we take them out to meet the supplier and and see them uh, the passion of a supplier and and what goes into the commitment of supplying product to to, to the plate to a restaurant. So that's what it's all about, I guess, yeah. Mm. And you're, you're literally future-proofing not only your business but the industry. Yeah, well, hopefully, yeah. I mean, it's it's supporting younger generation and, and um, we had our awards night last week in Sydney and it was fantastic to see young kids come through. You know, there's been a lot of negative press in the industry of late um, with, with everything that goes on in the industry, but I, f- I think as an industry we forget to... Uh, sell how good our industry really is from why I started, why I went to London and cooked and met all these great chefs and went to different markets and go to different restaurants and things like that. Mm. Um, Your mentor, Herman Schneider, once said that there's a lesson every day when you're working in the restaurant business. What do you think has been your most epic lesson after over 30 years in the business? Uh, (laughs) Um, well, probably just don't give up. I mean, just keep pushing on. Um, you know, there's, there's everyone's got an opinion on your food or your restaurant or your business, but whether it's a restaurant business or something else, everyone's always going to have an opinion. So you're going to be knocked down all the time. Um, I think it's about sticking to your guns um, and, and doing what you started out to do um, and, and staying true to that. Don't sway. From, from what you started out to do. Easier said than done, but um, it works for me. Because I imagine it would be hard to not take things personally, particularly when, because you you create a lot of dishes. Um, in fact, your one of your signature dishes is the licorice parfait, which I've had and it's incredible. Um, how difficult is it when, as you say, people have an opinion and there's so much of you tied up in a restaurant or a dish and it's easy to say don't take it personally because it's not personal, but it is personal, isn't it? Yeah, I think when you get the bad reviews and things like that and it's on a, in a national newspaper or something like that and you've got a not a great review, you know, well, here's a perfect example. When we had Glass, when we first opened Glass, <clears throat> we, um, I got a review in the Sydney Morning Herald which was 12 out of 20 and it was the worst review you could ever imagine. The, the guy hated everything. Um, so that was that was a bit of a, a, a kick in a kick in the face for me. But you know what it did. I think everyone read that review and thought this can't be true. This, you know, I, I had a name and I had a brand and we had a great reputation from Salt. This guy who's written the review, this this has got to be wrong. So everyone actually came in and tried the restaurant. 
and to see for themselves if it was that bad. And, and and I can't thank that reviewer to this day enough <sighs> for for writing that review. And I always look back, you know, reviewers that's their their opinion, and everyone's entitled to their opinion. Um, and and customers have an opinion; they like it, they don't, whatever. But you know, we didn't change course from that review, and that was pretty good that we didn't change course because we're still there today. Mm, great insight. So, Luke, you're turning fifty soon. What advice? Mm. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> well, they say fifty is the new thirty. Um, right. So, what advice do you think twenty-year-old Luke Mangan would give you? Um, I think pretty much going back to what I just said before, stick at it and. and um, you know, there's nothing I'd do different. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a good journey. And I think just stick at it and work hard and, and don't give up. That's what I would say. Mm. And what advice do you think 80-year-old Luke Mangan will give you? <laughs> well, he'd probably be on a deserted island just drinking pina coladas, so he probably <laughs> wouldn't be thinking too much about it. Ha- having just purchased Necker Island from Richard Branson. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. That would be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. I have been to Necker myself, and it is a very special place. Oh, when did you go? Uh, just in December. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. So did you meet Richard? I did, yeah. I had a lot of um, one-on-one time with him. He's incredible. And what what amazed me about Richard Branson, because it was 19 of us, um, all incredible entrepreneurs, that he was... Oh, did you go with the, um, what are they called? The um, Business chicks. Yeah, right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, what amazed me about Richard is that he was always the most curious person at the table. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Always asking lots of questions. Mm, absolutely. All right. I just want to finish with one last question. You, you quote... Sir Winston Churchill a lot in your book and one of the quotes is that success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. How, yeah. mu- how much of your success has been born from failure or disappointment? Well, a lot. I mean, if you look at uh, the apprenticeship I hated, <laughs> that uh, turned around to a good thing. The nearly financially broke um, and uh, opportunities that came around in that process as well. Um, and I think it just build, it makes you a bit stronger. It also says to me, I certainly don't want to go back to that part of 2005 where I'm, I've got no money. Um, and, and not that money, I do this for money. No, it's not about money. It's, it's a, we all need to survive. So that's, that's what it's all about. But I never opened salt to... to build a brand or, or, or make a shitload of money. It was all about, you know, creating a restaurant experience, which we did, but at, at a high cost. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think failures help you succeed so you don't want to go back to where you've been. Mm. That's my version anyway. <laughs> as, they, as they say, steel is forged in the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Luke, thank you for your time. Appreciate your insights. And um, I guess the final question is where you're at now. You've got restaurants all over the world, um, cruise ships, airlines, consultancies, a slew of TV and media commitments. What would you say, what What are you most proud of and what next for Luke Mungan? Um Well, you know, what am I most you know, I always say having a restaurant when people come to your restaurant on a Friday night, it's like you're, it's not 
it's 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 like a, an actor on stage, you know, or in a live theatre. You're only as good as your last meal. So, my goal is to keep serving and and delivering a great restaurant experience. And 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 a restaurant experience is not just food. It's it's service, flowers, music, wine list, ambiance, lighting, etc. Uh, etc. Et so that that's an experience. Um, and and I think that's what I've just got to keep continuing to do and that's what I want to do and and uh expanding Luke's kitchen brand hopefully and and um keeping the appetite for excellence program going and and you know we've got another program called the inspired series where now we are going to schools kids aged between 15 and 17 who are on that cusp of trying to work out what they're going to do for their career um I take some of the best chefs and restaurateurs and people in the industry and do a Q&A in front of students with these top like Pete Gilmore again and, and others uh, to talk about all their ups and downs and their experiences in the industry. So I see it as my job to um, sell our industry as a great opportunity for someone's career. And what a great am- ambassador you are for the industry. Luke Mangan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being epic and we wish you all the best. Thank you. How cool is Luke Mangan, someone I think I'm going to add to my dinner party list, although imagine the pressure that would put you under in terms of what you would cook. It would have to be something epic. So here are my lessons from that chat, uh, the three things that I think really stood out for me. The first one, be open to opportunity and ready to maximise it. I don't know about you, but I certainly thought about Uh, this story about Richard Branson coming into his restaurant and just how he sort of had to scramble, but how he really maximised that opportunity. So maybe think about in your business, what would the equivalent be of Richard Branson rocking up and, uh, and sitting down at a table? Number two, the power of partnerships. Uh, Luke's success via joint ventures, uh, obviously, he obviously puts a lot of work into nurturing those relationships. So really looking at how you can expand your personal brand uh, through joint ventures and through partnerships and brands that can bring something different to the table. And thirdly, your personal brand is often your most powerful asset. Luke's celebrity chef status has come very much off the back of his name. And while that may have potentially compromised a succession strategy, it's he has certainly maximised it to every single degree. And now Luke Mangan is a household name. So lots of really amazing lessons in that interview. I hope you loved it. All right, it's time for this week's epic health hack. And this week, I want to take a deep dive into a big topic, which is sleep. Now, we know sleep impacts every aspect of our life, and it's a challenge, particularly when our head is full of stuff that needs processing. And this week, of course, we're back with our favorite nutritionist and exercise scientist, Amelia Phillips, to help us with this big topic. Hi, Amelia. Hi, Amanda. Now, Amelia, there is nothing worse than knowing that you need a good night's sleep because you've got so much on, but your body just doesn't want to comply. How can we help our body wind down when our brains are so full of stuff? 
Mm. Well, firstly, you use the word wind down, and I think that's really the most important part. It's really about teaching our brains to slow down in that sort of 30 to 60 minutes before bed, and I think that's the real challenge for a lot of us. You know, we know what the main culprits are that we need to eliminate, things like alcohol, caffeine, screens, particularly social media, stimulating shows on TV. I actually find, you know, those slow Norwegian detective shows, I actually find they're really good for sleep. They're very dark. <laughs> because they're so of... boring. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I think maybe it's because the, you know, all the guys on it are pretty cute. So maybe that's like why I like watching them just before bed. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other episode. Of but, you know, it's it, just like babies need a ritual before bed um, and babies need those sleep signals. Our bodies need it too. When we have, think babies have like the bath, the bottle, the story, that kind of thing. Well, what happens is actually triggering neurological transmitters that prepare the body for sleep. So if we've got a similar kind of repetitive routine before bed, it will help us wind down a lot more effectively. Mm -hmm. And you talk about stimulants, of course, are the things that we need to remove in that time before bed. Uh, And of course, the Mm. big one is alcohol. How bad is alcohol for our sleep? Yeah, it's it's funny because alcohol will actually help you fall asleep faster, but it majorly disrupts your REM sleep. And that's the most restorative phase of your sleep. You know, when your eyes are flickering, um, it's also where we process. I find this really fascinating. It's where we process, we store and we release the emotional impacts from our day. So all that emotional stuff that's going on. So if you disrupt your REM sleep and you reduce your ability to deal with those emotional stresses in your life, then you're not going to be able to process them as effectively. And, you know, it's one of those things that that's when you start to carry those stresses around. And they've done quite a lot of research for people that suffer things like anxiety and depression and a lot of the time their REM sleep is of poor quality. The other thing with alcohol is it's a poison. It's a poison for the body. So your body has to prioritise processing the alcohol. Um, So it disrupts your digestive system. You absorb less nutrients from the food. You absorb more fat. You trigger unhelpful hormones. You know, I actually discovered this recently by using my Apple Watch. Um, Anyone out there that has an Apple Watch, you've got to download this sleep app. It's called Auto Sleep and it tracks your sleep by using the oscillation of your watch and also your heart rate. And when I have even just two glasses, glasses of alcohol before bed my average heart rate throughout the night is 15 beats per minute higher which completely screws up my sleep so so now I don't drink at night wow well that's all really um uh uninspiring news for those of us who like to have a wine or six at night thanks for that Amelia just just drink it drink in the morning then you'll be fine (laughs) drink in the morning (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, alcohol aside, I think the other big stimulant, of course, is social media. We we like to have a scroll before bed. um, And I guess what you're saying is we need to cut. We need to cut the scrolling. We need to put the phone down and have some social media free time before bed because it is a stimulant, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's uh, it's a self-discipline to to go to bed early and to, to stop that kind of activity it takes a lot of discipline to do that but if you're having trouble sleeping it absolutely is worth it 
Yeah. Um, and for a lot of us, falling asleep isn't the issue. It's actually the waking up in the middle of the night. So what are some tips around yeah. if you do wake up and uh, then you can't get back to sleep? It's, it's very common. Um, it's called middle insomnia and it can be as simple as oh, I having... Thought you, I thought you said middle be- age insomnia. No, <laughs> yes, probably. Yep, that too, actually. That too. Um, you calling me middle aged? No, no. Yes, I am actually. Mine's yes, called baby. Insomnia. Mine's called baby insomnia. Mine's called two year old waking up insomnia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the problem is once you kids start sleeping through, you still wake up in the middle of the night, yep. and then you have no one so to blame. So true. So true. So true. But look, it can be as simple as just having a full bladder. You're too hot, you're too cold, it's too bright in your room, or even you're sleeping too much. If you're getting more than eight or nine hours, haha, I wish, um, then it can just be that. But other issues like anxiety, sleep apnea can be reasons. Um, however, if you do wake up, you should always be able to fall back asleep quickly. But if this is you and you're not able to fall asleep quickly, try to gently coach yourself not to latch onto conscious thoughts. And there's a fantastic Martin Luther quote that I love. And I always think about this if it happens to me. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And it's that idea, you know, you get up to go to the toilet and suddenly a thought pops into your head. Yes. Just let the bird keep flying. Yes, Don't I let him that. nest. Yes. Because it's when he nests that you start that whole list making and yes, analyzing. Yes, yes. What a great, yeah. great tip. Um, and any apps can help as well? Yeah, so there's um, a couple of other kind of final tips. There's a great app called Calm. And if you are, do have um, trouble sleeping, just download this app. There's lots of different techniques you can use and meditation. Um, and that comes highly recommended. Some other tips are magnesium, before bed powdered magnesium. Bioceuticals do a really good uh, brand. A good book, of course. I love just having a book next to my bed. It might take me six months to get through, but um, and then another one: good old-fashioned sex. Okay. <laughs> sex yep. Is Although good it is sleep. debatable, if it's like you know married sex, it'll help you go to sleep. If it's you know new partner <laughs> sex, you might be up all night. Hopefully not during. <laughs> you don't fall asleep during. Then that's yeah, you've been married for too long. Uh, all just right. watch the Norwegian show. That's, yeah, that's my tip. <laughs> We might leave it there. Thanks, Amelia. Appreciate (laughs) those tips. For more health hacks, visit Amelia at ameliaphillips.com.au or download her podcast, Healthy Her. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Epic Podcast. I hope that you're feeling inspired to go and do, create or manifest something epic in your life. And if you're feeling inspired, perhaps give this episode an epic share on your favourite socials. I would be epically grateful. I'm Amanda Stevens, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Epic Podcast. 